Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, as I promised last week, today on the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, that's the topic. Uh, a lot of mainstream commentary going on here, too. Today, uh, a lot of it is just false. Uh, a lot of it is just uh, pushing the uh, party line, so to speak. So uh, let's uh, try to debunk some of these uh, claims and uh, provide a, an alternative view of what uh, is really going on uh, after a year, <clears throat> both economically regarding sanctions, so forth, the economies, and uh, in terms of uh, uh, politically, geopolitics, what's happened here, what's likely to continue to happen. And uh, then I want to make some commentary uh, on the military uh, strategies <clears throat> of the respective uh, uh, conflict here <clears throat> and uh, put it in some, some context. Uh, so let's just start with what's going on with uh, the economy and sanctions. Okay, uh, we uh, not coincidentally have a new round of sanctions issued today by the U.S. Maybe uh, the 12th. I don't know <laughs> such uh, round of sanctions. I think uh, Europe uh, had its sanctions last uh, last couple of days as well. Latest <clears throat> iteration <clears throat> sanctions, of course, uh, are levied uh, on the Russian economy. Uh, also on individuals. Um, I'm not going to comment on individuals that much, but it's basically, you know, the oligarchs and um, those who run the big big companies in Russia and uh, political friends of, uh, of Putin. Uh, so, uh, you know, we can put that aside <clears throat> and just talk about the uh, sanctions on the Russian economy. You know, the whole purpose of sanctions is to deny Russia... Uh, revenue, uh, because it's the revenue uh, that's used to uh, finance the war effort, government revenue we're talking about here, uh, and the whole idea of sanctions, if you prevent or significantly reduce the revenue, that they won't have enough to uh, buy the war goods and continue to war the war. Uh, when the sanctions were first immediately uh, levied here, uh, one of the major sanctions was uh, uh, for uh, the U.S. simply to steal uh, $300 billion plus of uh, assets uh, that uh, Russia had in terms of currencies, foreign exchange currencies, gold and so forth, in Western banks, central banks and private banks and so forth. The U.S. just uh, uh, froze that, took it. Uh, and uh, that, of course, was a... Uh, uh, a big sanction that denied Russia access to $300 billion equivalent, dollar equivalent, in foreign currencies, in dollars, in gold, and so forth. Russia, of course, still has a very large pot of gold at home here, uh, 2,300 2, tons of it, in fact. Uh, I'm not going to do the calculations. You figure the value of that in dollars at about $1,800 an ounce. And then uh, figure pounds and tons and 2,300. Okay. So uh, Russia still has a very large hundreds of billions of dollars of, uh, of gold reserves. Uh, and um, we don't know what uh, actual currency the reserves they have, how many dollars, how many euros, and so forth. But it's still quite significant. But the U.S. Uh, pretty much in piratical fashion uh, took uh, 300 20, 30 billion of it and froze it. Uh, the U.S. did the same for, you know, with uh, uh, Venezuela, uh, froze Venezuela's gold uh, in in London and uh, then uh, never gave it back uh, to Venezuela. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, pretty much took over its com Venezuela's company in the U.S., its uh, oil dis distribution company called Citgo, and uh, gave it to the uh, opposition, the, the Venezuelan opposition that since collapsed. No one knows what's happening with that asset now. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a typical move 
when the U.S. Um, levies sanctions on any country, and there's at least two dozen that are still still sanctioned, you know, from Cuba in the 50s to the to the present. Um, uh, you know, it it also it, it just takes what it can, uh, and then uh, squeezes the rest. Uh, and again, the whole idea of sanctions is to deny the country of uh, revenue uh, to conduct the war. Um, stealing it, of course, takes a big uh, tranche of that revenue away. But the other uh, sanctions are designed uh, to prevent the country from raising revenue by selling its goods, exporting its goods abroad. You sell it abroad, uh, you get revenue, right? So the sanctions are really designed to shut off access to markets abroad uh, for Russia, uh, most notably oil, right, shutting off uh, the very large uh, uh, oil and gas markets Russia had uh, in Europe, Western Europe. Uh, so that, um, you know, is, is a major effort to prevent uh, also – uh, the country, in this case Russia, from accessing uh, capital markets, money markets uh, in the West, be it London or, or Bond or whatever the markets might be, New York, um, cut that off too because you can get uh, revenue, quote, by borrowing, right? You get money by borrowing, so you shut them off from that access to quote, uh, de facto revenue, shut them off from uh, export revenue. Uh, you get your companies to leave the country uh, because they have to pay taxes, uh, and that's a, kind of a source of revenue as well. Uh, so that's um, another way. All, all of these are ways of de- denying the company uh, revenue. Right. And that's uh, what's been going on with these sanctions. Um, And the whole idea is uh, uh, prevent uh, military expenditures, uh, crush the economy uh, so the economy uh, uh, domestically can't raise money and revenue. Uh, If you have a a big deep recession or depression, that means the government uh, tax revenue money falls off as well. And uh, creates political back pressure here against the policies uh, of the government. Uh, this is what, what it's all about. Um, the U.S., of course, has an advantage in, uh, in, in, in um, the fact that the dollar is the global trading currency for all these uh, commodities that Russia needs to export and sell to raise revenue. Um, oil and gas are virtually all traded in dollars. On top of that, uh, you know, industrial commodities of which Russia provides a big share globally, uh, you know, whether it's uh, nickel or uh, other uh, metals or whether it's uh, agriculture uh, goods. Uh, we know about wheat and we know about sunflower oil and so forth. Uh, these are big export items of Russia, and they are all traded in dollars, mostly. Uh, that's breaking down some. Um, we'll talk about that. But, uh, um, you know, the U.S., because it's the dollar and all of these uh, uh, products that are being exported from Russia for revenue are uh, bought and sold in dollars, the U.S., um, uh, has uh, leverage uh, over these countries where, to the extent that they buy and sell in dollars. And as I said, the, you know, the key to the global empire is the U.S. dollar and the fact that these commodities globally are traded only in dollars or largely in dollars. Uh, so um, uh, the U.S. then uses uh, what's called the SWIFT, uh, which is an acronym, SWIFT, International Payment System, uh, uh, which is associated uh, with all these transactions in dollars. SWIFT uh, is really w- what uh, banks, when they move money from one to the other, when there's a, uh, a transaction, uh, SWIFT uh, is the way that the U.S. sees who's buying what in dollars. Yeah, it's an eye on uh, the, the global transactions. So that that's another key element of the U.S. economic empire, the uh, international payment system, SWIFT. Um, U.S. gets to see uh, uh, who's abiding by the sanctions or not. Uh, that's why ever since the war began, there's been a, a move by uh, China and Russia and other countries, BRICS and so forth, uh, to um, 
trade in these goods uh, outside the dollar system, which means outside the SWIFT international payment system, which means uh, to do it um, in a way that the U.S. is blind. They can't see who's violating the sanctions or not. Uh, so that's a key um element of the U.S. economic empire, the payment system. Uh, if, if the trading uh, in oil was in uh, Chinese yuan, uh, then the um, U.S. wouldn't be able to tell uh, who bought what with yuan, you see. Uh, there, there might be other ways, but they're very inefficient. Um, and uh, to the extent that countries uh, use their own currencies, swapping their own currencies other than dollars, uh, that would put uh, a blind eye to the U.S. as well. And by the way, uh, Saudi Arabia and China recently agreed to do so, uh, to buy and sell oil uh, with each other uh, using uh, Saudi currency and Chinese yuan here. Uh, and there's an attempt to set up a, a parallel um uh, international payment system. I think it's called MIR, M-I-R, and uh, some other uh, uh, bartering, selling you know goods directly with each other. Uh, so one consequence of the sanctions has been to uh, weaken the, uh, these um, elements of the U.S. economic empire, to weaken the dollar's role, to weaken the payments, swift payments role. Uh, and of course, you know, you've got the IMF, um, which bails out countries when they have. Uh, of uh, currency problems and balance of payments problems, exchange rate problems when the currencies collapse. That's the role of the IMF. The IMF, of course, is controlled by the U.S. and does whatever the U.S. wants, including uh, providing money to Ukraine here, um, along with the U.S. and NATO. Okay, so that's the picture on sanctions. and supposed to weaken the Russian economy significantly, uh, put political pressure as a result on uh, Putin to, to stop the war, and uh, also, uh, you know, to deny Russia uh, and weaken its economy. Well, let's look at some of the uh, statistics here. Has the Russian economy really been negatively impacted uh, by the sanctions so far, these 12 uh, tranches of sanctions, right? Uh, well, not very much, not very much, if, if any at all. Uh, for example, and all, all these statistics I'm, I'm going to refer to come from independent source called tradingeconomics.com, uh, which follows global economies. Uh, it, it's, I think it's an American uh, re, you know, market research company. Anyway, tradingeconomics.com. What does it say? Uh, well, last year in 2022... Right. Uh, the when the war started, uh, the currency, the ruble, uh, weakened significantly. But then it stabilized. It stabilized, uh, and at a time that other currencies, uh, for reasons unrelated to the war, were also weakening, unrelated to the war. Right. So. Uh, it's hard to say how much of the weakening of the ruble initially in the first first few weeks uh, was really due to the war and how much uh, was due to these other forces going on uh, globally. But anyway, uh, the currency trading to the dollar was 75 rubles to the dollar in April of 22. Uh, and uh, February of 23, it's still at 75. So... Um, the ruble has not uh, collapsed, as uh, the sanctions uh, said they would make the ruble collapse. You know, if you have a collapsing ruble or currency, then the cost of imports are significantly higher, uh, and uh, that weakens your economy. Uh, so uh, in, in measured in terms of currency stability, nope, nothing there to be concerned about. How about crude oil production? Uh you know, if you're not selling your crude oil, you're going to reduce your production. If you are selling your crude, then you don't need to produce, uh, uh, reduce your production. What, what's the picture there? Crude oil production uh, in uh, 2021, 10.2 billion barrels a day, uh, about the same as Saudi Arabia, right? The U.S. Is, is, produces even more, 12. A billion barrels a day. Uh, and uh, how about uh, a year later, at the end of October? Uh, 10.2. So uh, no reduction in crude oil. Crude oil. How about uh, oil exports? Oil exports. 
uh, no uh, actually an increase in oil exports, it looks like. Uh, now, uh, Russia is selling it uh, at a lower price to enable uh, the continuation of the export of its oil. And a lot more is going to China and India. Uh, and uh, are they really using it in China India? Well, there's some evidence India in particular may be re-exporting it at profit, right? So India has uh, significantly increased its uh, imports of oil uh, from Russia. And when we say oil, we're talking about crude, and we're also talking about refined oil like gasoline and, and um, uh, diesel and so forth, right? Okay, uh, so uh, the oil production and exports, and therefore the main revenue for Russia's government, has not uh, declined. Uh, that's a you know a, a big indicator that uh, uh, sanctions haven't worked, even though uh, Russia has been driven out of uh, Western European economies to a large extent. Uh, that really hasn't um, uh, you know impacted its total. Uh, exports and and uh, sales, uh, you know, it's made up elsewhere. And by the way, you know, uh, it hasn't really been totally driven out of uh, of uh, until very recently. Here, it took a whole year of sanctions. Very clear, the U.S. and NATO uh, were very careful. They didn't block all this oil all at once, uh, uh, or the natural gas. Uh, they just uh, reduced it. So the the cost and the pressure on the Western European economies wasn't that great. And that gave the U.S. time to fill that gap. Uh, the U.S. has significantly increased its oil exports to Europe and its natural gas exports to Europe significantly. In other words, uh, Russia has been driven out of the Western European energy markets largely, although it's still selling uh, LNG, uh, ship-based natural gas, to Europe. The pipelines are shut down. Uh, Well, not even the pipelines. There are pipelines that are still functioning. Um, There's the the southern pipeline that brings Russian natural gas to uh, uh, Hungary and uh, Czechoslovakia and Italy. That's still going. And there's actually the pipeline that goes through uh, Ukraine, believe it or not, is still functioning. Uh, So it's a strange war. It's not a, a total war going on. Uh, it's sort of a, uh, a step-by-step, and, you know, let's make sure the corpor- big corporations and businesses uh, still get their energy here until uh, we can uh, uh, change the European economy to a U.S.-based energy economy uh, and not a Russian-based energy economy. Okay, back to the impact of sanctions on Russia. Uh, as we've seen, uh, no, no impact on currency, no impact on uh, crude oil and exports. Uh, what about the economy in general? Well, um, no impact there on manufacturing. Uh, the manufacturing indicator called the PMI um, uh, in uh, 2021 uh, was uh, 53. And if it's over 50, uh, manufacturing is expanding. Uh, and uh, in 23, um, uh, January 23, in other words, a measure of 2022, uh, it was 52.6. So you go from 53 indicator before the war to a 52.6 indicator, um, no change. Uh, contrast that to uh, manufacturing PMIs uh, in the UK and Germany, Japan, all of which are contracting, right? Uh, in Russia, uh, manufacturing is not contracting. Uh, in the Western European countries, in Japan, it is contracting. Okay. What about foreign currency reserves on hand, uh, which are necessary, and a c- country needs these foreign currency reserves uh, to buy imports from other countries, right? Uh, and all countries hold significant uh, reserves. Uh, be they in dollars, be it in gold, be it in other currencies, euros, or yen, or whatever. Um, well, look at that. Uh, Russia's foreign currency reserves have increased uh, over 2022 uh, from roughly uh, uh, the equivalent, I think, of $58 billion, uh, $58.2 billion. I think this is right because they put it in million. And I've got to translate it to billions here. 
58, anyway, 58.2. Uh, in January of this year, 59.7. So reserves have actually gone up. Yeah. Um, and the currency is stable, while uh, the U.K. currency uh, uh, last fall almost collapsed, and the same with the euro uh, the U.K. currency, the pound, the British pound here, uh, fell uh, uh, to uh, from one 1.13 to 96 to the dollar. Uh, and it, it's recovered a little bit here, uh, but it's down, uh, you know, 5 to 10 percent still. The euro is down, well, the pound's down about 10 percent. Uh, the euro's down at least 5 percent. Uh, collapsed from 130 to the dollar to 110, now back up to 117. Anyway, and the yen, of course, has collapsed even more. So currencies of uh, of the allies uh, have uh, suffered, uh, whereas the currency of, uh, of Russia has not. A lot of that is due to U.S. economic policies, not the war. You know, uh, uh, inflation in the U.S., uh, significant over the past year, and now very chronic. It just won't go down. Here, recent reports, CPI, PCE, price reports show still chronic, and in some cases even rising. Uh, so the Fed raises interest rates to try to slow the economy. Interest rates then in turn drive up the value of the dollar. And because the dollar is the global currency, trading currency, all of the currencies uh, devalue to the extent that the dollar uh, revalues, goes up. So uh, the euro, the pound, and all the others uh, have uh, devalued, uh, unless the country takes steps uh, uh, to push its currency back up by buying uh, its currency in global markets, uh, increases the demand, raises the price, etc., uh, but in Europe, of course, uh, the currencies have devalued because of U.S. economic policies here, uh, more so than, than the war. Although they're not uh, unrelated, there is an ultimate connection between the war and uh, inflation and therefore Fed interest rate hikes, therefore the dollar rising and other currencies falling. We talked about this in in previous uh, uh, shows here. Uh, anyway, uh, how about business confidence in Russia? Uh, it was uh, contracting very mildly here before the war, but it's back up uh, uh, positive here uh, last year. Right? What about unemployment rate? Well, uh, no change there. It was 3.7. It's 3.7% uh, unemployment rate again. Uh, what about inflation? Well, inflation's uh, around 11% last year, January to January. But, uh, you know, so was Italy at 11% and the U.K. at 10.5%, right? Uh, EU in general, 8.5%, eight, Germany, 8.7%. Uh, so, um, you know, it's hard to tell whether uh, that 11% inflation rate uh, in uh, in Russia is due to general economic conditions uh, or whether it... <clears throat> related to the war in general, or whether it's due to the sanctions. Uh, but the general picture is that the sanctions are not uh, uh, not working all that well, and that's why they keep uh, adding more and more sanctions, I guess. Uh, and, of course, the latest sanctions came out today. Uh, two, two things significant about the latest sanctions, you know, well, they added 200 more individuals in Russia and tightened the banking side a little bit. Uh, but they're targeting more uh, of the electronics, the chips, semiconductor chips, and uh, trying to slow uh, the production of military goods uh, in Russia. Uh, but more important, I think, than any of this in the latest sanctions is is the commentary uh, by uh, U.S. officials uh, that the U.S. is prepared to uh, levy what's called secondary sanctions uh, on countries that violate the primary sanction. You know, the primary sanction is don't, don't buy, buy Russian oil uh, uh, if the price is above $60 a barrel, right? This is the price cap that the uh, NATO and G7, uh, you know, the Western powers uh, attempt to 
uh, impose on the global economy and their great arrogance, right? Uh, the hell with market forces determining supply and demand. Uh, we're, we're dictating that uh, thou shalt not buy Russian oil uh, if it's more than $60 a barrel. Again, this is a way of, uh, of reducing Russian access to, to revenues and money to conduct the war, right? Uh, so they set this price cap of $60, arbitrary, right, political uh, statement. Uh, and, uh, of course, Russia is ignoring it, and it's selling its oil, uh, sometimes uh, more than $60, sometimes less, because Russia is selling more oil because it's discounting it 20 to 30%. So, you know, India and others really want to buy it. It's cheap global oil, you know. Um that's how Russia is countering this, the sanctions. Uh, uh, the global price of oil came down a little bit here in the last several months, but it's going back up now very clearly. Uh, it's around 75 to $80 a barrel, depending whether uh, the pricing is in Texas or, or North Sea uh, Brent, uh, purest oil, around $80 a barrel. Uh, some talk is it's going to go up to $100 a barrel. You know, to digress a little bit, if you look at inflation in the U.S., uh, yeah, it was running 8.5% here at the peak last summer uh, when the oil companies were really price gouging us and producing for themselves uh, $250 billion in, in excess profits last year at our expense. Right, uh, Chevron and Exxon and everything announcing record profits, fifty billion dollars record profits last year each. Each, right, all of them, same thing because of price hikes. Well, that uh, the price uh, came down a little bit uh, uh, in the second half of the year. Right, the price of the pump came down a little bit uh, as well for gasoline, etc. And, uh, you know, with the price uh, coming down, then the CPI, Consumer Price Index, uh, came down a little bit. To, to the extent that the CPI came down from 85 to 65 and it seems to be stuck there last two months, uh, it's mostly because of, uh, uh, you know, the moderating of prices uh, for, um, for gasoline and, 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 and oil uh, and uh, cars, autos. You know, which had to do with semiconductor, they say. Uh, a lot of price gouging there going on, too. Uh, ch- chip prices, et cetera. Well, you know, those are not demand problems, demand inflation problems. Those are supply problems, supply-driven inflation. And as I said all along, you know, the Fed uh, can only impact demand side, consumer side spending to bring down inflation. But most of the inflation is supply side and global and price gouging, and collapsing productivity in the U.S. That's the real problem. Uh, and the Fed can't do anything about that, and apparently confirms my position because the inflation has only come down uh, a couple of percent after 5% nearly increase in the Fed interest rates. 5% increase and you get maybe 2% reduction in CPI. Uh, they want to get it from 6.5 to 2, 2%. Well, does that mean they're going to have to uh, double, maybe triple interest rates <laughs> to get it down to that? Who knows? Maybe. Uh, <clears throat> but they're certainly not getting it down with 5%, nor will they get it down much uh, much more with 6%, because the inflation is supply side. It's not demand side. And that's all the Fed can do. You know, whack, unemploy- whack employment, cause more employment, uh, you know, Cause uh, wage wage uh, uh, declines and so forth, and consumption will fall, demand will fall, and prices will fall. That's the only thing Fed can do. Uh, anyway, the point I was going to make here is that if you look at uh, the latest round of sanctions today, uh, you know it's more of the same. <clears throat> uh, but what I think is significant is that uh, the U.S. officially now is threatening. Other countries, if they don't abide by the sanctions, uh, the sanctions aren't working so well. Primary sanctions on Russia. Russia is still selling more oil and getting revenue. So the way they think they're going to deal with it uh, is to go after 
other countries who were buying Russian oil and Russian metals and Russia, Russia uh, you know, industrial commodities, agricultural commodities, go after them. That's called secondary sanctions. Sanction the purchaser, not Russia the seller. Now, that's fraught with geopolitical issues and problems, isn't it? What's the U.S. going to do? Go after India and sanction India for buying Russian oil? Well, that's just what they said. Uh, Wally Adamayo, who's the Undersecretary of Treasury, came on uh, Bloomberg TV today, uh, the 24th of February, and he said, quote, I'm quoting him now, we'll go after them, meaning India, too, if they violate sanctions. Oh, this is a shot across the bow here by the U.S. to India and others. You better not buy Russian oil above our arbitrary price cap of $60 a barrel, uh, or else we're going to sanction you. Well, they're not saying how they're going to do that, but it's a threat. It's a threat. They're looking at the U.S., NATO, G7. They're all the same the same player here, right? It's it's the Imperial West. It's the U.S. Empire with its uh, key allies in Europe, Japan, and South Korea. That's the uh, you know the global empire uh, here on the rest of the world. And the reason we got all this conflict emerging now uh, is because you got countries that just don't want to go along with the empire anymore. You know, Venezuela didn't, and they tried to slap them down. Uh, and, of course, they don't like Cuba. They don't like Nicaragua. Uh, there's some uh, South American countries that uh, they're nervous about as well. There's the BRICS that are, you know, the, the uh, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, South Africa uh, group, China. That's the BRICS that trade a lot with each other. They're the ones that are trying to uh, get out from under the dollar and trade with each other in other ways with a different uh, international payment system, right? Uh, the U.S., the empire doesn't like that. Uh, you know, it's a challenge. Uh, Russia and uh, China are a challenge to the global economic order. They call that the new world order, whatever the hell. Uh, it's the U.S. empire. <clears throat> it's a way of obfuscating saying imperial America and its allies, uh, you know, this whole war uh, in the Ukraine here, um, I believe, and I've talked about it before, was really to uh, uh, a, a number of geopolitical objectives for the U.S., uh, and we'll review those here uh, shortly. And uh, at the top of that, that list was to, to drive Russia out of the European economy. You know, Europe was becoming increasingly dependent on Russian oil and gas, cheap oil and gas. And the U.S. didn't like that. Uh, the U.S., uh, uh, you know, part of the war, uh, whole idea is to reunite uh, a European NATO under U.S. hegemony once again and to drive Russia out of the Western European economy so the U.S. corporations can fill that vacuum. And that's exactly what's happening, right? Russia's being driven out. Uh, U.S. oil uh, and gas companies are coming in. Uh, other countries, uh, you know, uh, other companies, Russian companies are being driven out of Europe uh, and uh, the U.S. is uh, is coming in, solidifying its economic hegemony over Europe, just as it's solidifying its political hegemony uh, and, uh, you know, with, with NATO over Western Europe. Okay. Um, this is a good segue for me to um, revisit uh, my article of last of January 2022. In January 2022, I wrote an article, and I'm going to repost it on my blog, jackrasmus.com, and uh, write uh, a follow-up to it. Uh, the title of this article, uh, again, uh, after the show, go check it out on my blog, uh, JackRasmus.com is, quote, 10 reasons why the U.S. may want to invade Ukraine. Uh, this article was published uh, in several leading blogs, uh, um, among them uh, L.A. Progressive, uh, Counterpunch, and others at the time, uh, provided my analysis of, uh, of why I believe in January of 22 uh, that Russia 
was going to invade uh, Ukraine. Uh, and I gave a, a, a historical review of, of uh, developments uh, since uh, 2014 leading up uh, to this uh, likely invasion. To give it some background, and you know, basically, uh, the U.S. has been moving NATO east since 1999 when the neocons got control of U.S. uh, uh, foreign policy, I believe. Uh, Basically, uh, uh, Clinton opened the door to him, let them in, uh, so he could get support, uh, not to get uh, impeached. Uh, and convicted because he couldn't keep his zipper closed, right? Remember that? Yeah. Uh, so he turned it over to them. He turned the economy over to the big banks, too, in 1998-99. Um, it kind of begins there. And in 1999, uh, NATO quickly moves east, uh, adds uh, Poland and some other uh, major economies, and then it uh, moved further east. Add, after that, added the Balkans. Uh, in the you know Romania, southern southeastern Europe, uh, and uh, then in 2008 even tried to add uh, 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 Georgia. Uh, that didn't turn out too well. Uh, it, it got pushed back. There was a war there. Um, Georgia never got to join NATO. Uh, but uh, the next U.S. big push was uh, Ukraine, and the Ukraine uh, it pulled off the Russia U.S. Uh, CIA and and the State Department pulled off uh, a coup in 2013-14, right after an election in which the pro-Russian president got got elected. Uh, You know, they didn't like that. Uh, So uh, the U.S. engineered a a coup. Uh, And and this is public record, you know. The U.S. Undersecretary of State at the time Victoria Newland or Virginia Newland, um, U.S. Undersecretary of State, former finance capitalist out of Chicago, uh, uh, bragged about having uh, having uh, engineered that coup and spending five billion U.S. dollars. Uh, a lot of it going to um, uh, neo-fascist uh, shock troops on the ground uh, to pull off uh, the coup, uh, and then after that. Uh, Newland got appointed by Ukraine government, <clears throat> which was full of Nazis, still is, uh, to become the economic czar. Uh, even though she wasn't a citizen, they suspended their citizen uh, requirements and gave her citizenship here to um, make her the economic czar. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, you know, U.S. companies, uh, you know, piled into Ukraine, bought up other Ukrainian companies, became embedded. The U.S.'s deep capitalism is deeply embedded in Ukraine. That's why it doesn't want to leave or uh, agree to any compromises over there. Uh, you know, and all this, this issues about uh, uh, Biden's son and a laptop, you know, it's all part of this invasion of U.S. capital uh, into Ukraine. Uh, and politically, the U.S. Uh, pulling strings as well. Uh, it got uh, the Ukraine Ukrainians to agree to what was called the Minsk uh, uh, Agreement. Minsk is a city in Belarus, uh, and Russia, you know, uh, responded by protecting its naval base in Crimea. Took that over in 2014 at the time of the coup. Uh, but then both sides uh, agreed to uh, uh, an armistice of sorts called the Minsk Agreement, one and two. Uh, that was just a by time, which has been admitted now by uh, the, you know Western leaders. You know, uh, uh, Merkel in Germany publicly said, "Yeah, that was just a by time." Uh, the president of Ukraine at the time, Poroshenko, said, "Yeah, we didn't really uh, uh, intend uh, not to invade." Uh, you know, the provinces, eastern uh, Ukraine provinces, that was just to buy time. Francois Hollande, the president of France, said the same thing. They've all admitted it post hoc here that uh, Minsk was just a, a, a tactical move uh, to buy time and uh, to get eight years uh, to prepare uh, to uh, 
militarily attack the breakaway provinces here uh, and to prepare for any Russian invasion of those provinces. And they've had eight years uh, deep defensive uh, uh, defenses have, have been developed uh, throughout, uh, you know, the Donbass region there. Uh, and that's why uh, the fight is, is so intensive uh, to uh, you know, to drive them out of that area, them, uh, the, the Ukrainian government. They knew the fight was coming here. And uh, the U.S. Uh, pretty much running the geopolitical show for, for Ukraine uh, and U.S. companies coming in in mass here. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the background of this, this war. And that's why uh, in January 22, I argued in this article the 10 reasons, you know, why they want, they, meaning Ukraine government and uh, political forces in control, and uh, not just Ukraine government, but uh, the uh, U.S. and NATO. Now, the 10 reasons, let's revisit them, right? Uh, first, on the list of 10 reasons, was the war would uh, uh, provide a pretext for the U.S. to um, reunite NATO and strengthen U.S. hegemony over it once again, over NATO. Uh, it was really faltering uh, under Trump here, and the French and the Germans were talking about going more independent and so forth. Uh, but um, the U.S. then blocked with its new Eastern European NATO allies, and pretty much uh, that, uh, uh, that group is running NATO. Now, uh, the, the, the French and the Germans are reluctantly going along, but they've been sidelined uh, running NATO from the European side that they previously had. And now it's, uh, you know, it's Poland and it's the Baltics and uh, uh, other Eastern European countries blocking with the U.S. that are calling the shots. Right. Uh, so uh, uh, the U.S. has achieved a major geopolitical objective here already. Uh, by reuniting and establishing hegemony over NATO uh, by this war. This could not have happened without the war. Uh, what is the second uh, reason to invade uh, or to you know, entice Russia to invade? Uh, well, the second reason uh, was, as I said in 22 last year, uh, to get Germany to cancel Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Well, we now know that uh, the U.S. and Norway sabotaged that gas pipeline to prevent uh, the, uh, the, the Germans from uh, may, maybe having second thoughts about uh, reopening that pipeline. Uh, so that has been achieved. And, of course, uh, uh, that achievement means uh, the U.S. Uh, steps in uh, liquid LNG U.S. corporations, and, and they get Germany to uh, build uh, uh, new LNG ports uh, on its uh, coastline there for U.S. LNG ships, right, to supply higher-cost gas, some three, four times the price of uh, Russian gas, uh, to Germany and Europe, right? So uh, that was a big big achievement, right? They did uh, cancel Nord Stream 2, and they are step-by-step step shutting off the other pipelines. Um, recently, uh, Europe has agreed, in, I think it was in December, uh, not to uh, import any Russian ship-based oil, or, or but the ship-based LNG is still uh, occurring. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're slowly tightening the screws, cutting off all the energy from Russia, right? Uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, that was settled uh, very easily and quickly here, right? Uh, and it means uh, big profits for U.S. oil and gas companies as they ship more U.S. We have a glut of oil and gas in the U.S., right? So, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, gasoline prices are not because we don't have enough oil. It's because uh, we, we, don't, uh, we, we haven't built any refineries in the U.S. in decades, and that's the way the oil companies want it. Right. Uh, because whenever we have a spike in oil and gas uh, prices, oh, you know, they had a fire at a, uh, a Texas uh, refinery or, oh, they had to shut down for maintenance. You know, watch the fires and maintenance occur in the next couple of months before the summer. <laughs> it happens every year. OK. Uh, the third reason 
to send uh, excuse for the U.S. to send uh, a more advanced weaponry to Baltics and Eastern Europe, Poland, Romania, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, right? Well, the war has meant uh, uh, that uh, these countries, these European countries, have sent their old USSR junk uh, to uh, to Ukraine. Uh, they've uh, you know, depleted all of that. So now, uh, to to rearm their countries, they need uh, more advanced, which they wanted, more advanced uh, weaponry from the United States, which the U.S. will now sell to them, is selling to them. So it's part of... Uh, the objective was to um, uh, what re rearm uh, Eastern Europe with more advanced weapons here, uh, and of course that benefits the U.S. defense companies uh, massively here. Uh, so they've achieved that, and now of course these Baltics and Poland, you know, want U.S. more U.S. troops. Uh, stationed in their countries, and they want uh, U.S. nuclear arms stationed in their countries as well. So they're moving towards that. So that's been a a, a third objective gained by the U.S. Right? Uh, obtain for obtain more economic concessions from Ukraine for U.S. businesses in exchange for the U.S. sending uh, you know more arms to um, to Ukraine. Well, you know the U.S. Uh, in 2022, has provided $111 billion to Ukraine. About half of that uh, has been uh, actual uh, military hardware uh, from the U.S. And it's not money that gone to Ukraine. It goes uh, directly from the U.S. Treasury to U.S. war-producing countries, uh, companies that then send the goods to Ukraine. Uh, but about half of that has been just to prop up the Ukrainian economy uh, as a uh, Secretary uh, Treasury Yellen said uh, four to seven billion dollars a month is necessary for the U.S. to keep the Ukrainian economy afloat, even though that economy is contracted by 30 uh, percent in GDP terms over the past year. Right. Uh, of course, you send more and more money, uh, you gain more and more influence over the Ukrainian economy and its banking system. And that's what's going on as well. Uh, the U.S. is running uh, the Ukraine, U- Ukrainian economy, and U.S. Uh, capitalists are deeply embedded now in Ukraine. Uh, the fifth uh, fifth reason I said was to grow U.S. political support, support to go after Moldova to drive Russian supporters out of Moldova. You know, you still have Russian forces there uh, at, at, in Moldova in the area called Transnistria, right? Uh, and uh, to to drive them out and to um, bring Moldova into NATO as well. And that fight's going on right now. Uh, there are large demonstrations by Moldovans. They don't. They want to remain neutral, but it's a prime minister is pro pro U.S. pro West and wants to bring it into uh, NATO. Uh, Right now, uh, the U.S. has sent the 101, the 101st Airborne, I think it is, uh, division uh, to the Romanian border on Moldova, and it will intervene uh, if and when necessary here, I believe. Okay, so that's five reasons uh, to, you know, entice Russia to invade. Uh, the sixth, uh, sixth reason I indicated was uh, uh, the U.S. is... is is testing the extent of anti-Russian opposition in Belarus and Kazakhstan. Uh, They attempted uh, some popular uprisings there uh, through the CIA that didn't go too well. Uh, That's kind of on hold uh, right now, maybe in Kazakhstan, I don't know, uh, certainly in Belarus, right? it becomes a nice issue here for Biden and the Democrats to look tough before an election, right? Uh, so there's political U.S. domestic reasons uh, to provoke a war in Ukraine, which is what they've done here. I mean, look, you know, I, I mean, think of it this way. Uh, this war is really about uh, all these reasons that the U.S. wants uh, wants a war. But it's also about, uh, you know, domestic politics in the U.S., right? Uh, makes uh, Biden look like he's tough, you know, against uh, a foreign power. Uh, you know, presidents like to do that. Often wars are the result of presidents and 
domestic politics in in the U.S. Um, so, uh, you know, that's another element, maybe not the most important element, but, you know, it's there. Uh, and uh, it's it's part of this, this general picture of uh, why the U.S. Uh, provoked uh, uh, Russia to invade. Uh, look, you know, uh, I mean, Russia probably would not have invaded if it simply had a statement from the U.S. and from the Ukrainian puppet government that— uh, uh, look, uh, we agree to neutrality. We will not join NATO. You know, right before this thing uh, arose in, in late 21 here, uh, the U.S. Uh, was uh, talking about bringing, uh, uh, quickly bringing uh, Ukraine into NATO. And, uh, of course, uh, Zelensky was really popping off, uh, talking not only about, yeah, we want to join NATO right now, but we also want uh, nuclear arms here uh, to defend against uh, Russia. Uh, well, you know, that made Russia very nervous. Uh, and uh, Russia tried for months here in 21 uh, to uh, meet with the U.S. to discuss these issues. Uh, Biden refused to meet. Uh, as I've said before and wrote before, I believe the, Russia, uh, the U.S. pulled precipitously out of Afghanistan, declared a dex uh, to you know, start this conflict in Ukraine. Uh, really, that, that's, uh, the, the two are linked here. You, you can't separate them because right after Right after it pulls out of Afghanistan, the U.S. starts pumping up Ukraine, sending military advisors, sending military goods, talking about uh, uh, NATO, talking up NATO and joining the EU and everything. Right. Uh, and, and of course, its puppet there um, really followed suit uh, in doing so. Uh, I'm talking about Zelensky. Right. OK. But by the way, recent poll here by uh, uh, I think it's the University of Kiev Sociology Department, maybe one of the other Ukrainian universities, independent polls show that Zelensky's support is down to 28%. That's it, among the populace of Ukraine. Right? And then, interestingly, uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal front page article yesterday, the 23rd, uh, was not very favorable to Zelensky. Uh, yeah, they said no, this and that, he did okay. But then they, they interjected some, for the first time, I think, some very negative comments about Zelensky. Uh, you know, I think the U.S. really wants uh, this this head of the Ukrainian military, Zeluzhny, uh, to run the show. And we'll see what, what happens. You know, Zelensky is going to go the way of uh, others in the U.S., uh, replaces uh, someone with a more favorable uh, uh, representative of its interest. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, I predicted that uh, here in this article of a year ago, uh, it would provide a foreign policy distraction for the Democratic Party before the midterms. Uh, eight, number eight reason of the 10, to get Congress to approve a further increase in U.S. defense budget. Uh, yeah, well, that certainly occurred, hasn't it? The defense budget was $778 billion uh, before the war. Uh, the U.S. then spent $111 billion last year, more so for this year. Uh, you know, they're dribbling it out in the, in hundreds of millions and a couple billions at a time, so it doesn't, doesn't bring too much attention to the public that this huge amount of spending, U.S. going on, uh, in, in Ukraine, and, and much of it, as I said, just to prop up its economy at a time when uh, uh, the U.S. the uh, Congress and President are are reducing spending uh, on COVID relief and so forth in the U.S. and health and education. <clears throat> okay, so uh, seven hundred seventy-eight billion. Uh, yeah, now it's eight hundred fifty-eight billion for Pentagon. Huge increase for the Pentagon here. Eighty-some billion dollars for the Pentagon. Incredible. In one year. And uh, uh, that's just the beginning. It's going to go up uh, because they tack on other spending called overseas contingency operation spending uh, on top of that Pentagon budget. Uh, we'll spend another $100 billion or more this year uh, on uh, you know, on the war in Ukraine, on top of uh, uh, the $858 billion here, which is, as I say, a floor, and it's going to go higher. Right? Uh, U.S. defense spending is clearly out of control, as I said back then. 
because the Pentagon spending is not total defense spending. There's maybe a couple hundred billion dollars more in other departments that qualify as, quote, defense war spending in the U.S. So we're really spending over a trillion dollars here every year now on uh, defense and wars. Uh, this can't go on. Uh, U.S. deficit uh, for this year is projected again over a trillion dollars, 1.4 trillion. Uh, the U.S. total debt now is 33, 33 trillion here in 2023. Uh, uh, that's up from 4 trillion 20 years ago. Yeah, we've gone from four trillion to thirty-three trillion as we get involved in all these wars in the Middle East and everywhere. I'm not going to list all the wars we've talked about them, uh, but the U.S. is throwing away all kinds of money. A lot of it is falling into the pockets of the military-industrial complex, by the way, uh, and the oil companies, which are part of the M- MIC. Uh, so. Um, Projections are the U.S. $33 trillion deficit, the national debt is going to go up $12 trillion more by the end of the decade. So $45 trillion national debt. Uh, that's not counting uh, the Federal Reserve debt, which is eight, $8 trillion, or state and local government, which is like $3 trillion more. So, you know, it's well over $50 trillion. Uh, now, if your GDP and the economy is growing, it doesn't matter what the volume of your debt is. You can service it. But if the economy is not growing very well, and it's not, it only grew 1% last year, right? Um, and, you know, if you're continuing these massive tax cuts for investors uh, and corporations, which we are, right, and if interest rates are rising, which they are, then the interest payments on the debt go way up as well, uh, which adds even further to deficits and debt. Well, what do they project the interest costs on the debt this year will be as Fed raises rates? $600 billion, just interest on the debt. And there was money paid to investors that hold treasuries. Right? That's up from $350 billion in 2019. So it's almost doubled in the last couple of years, interest on the debt. And it's going to go higher because interest rates are going to continue to go higher as well. So we've got this problem of over a trillion dollars in defense spending here uh, and the debt, you know, escalating out of reach here and interest on it rising. Um, it's a real crisis in, in long term for the U.S. economy that's uh, developing a real crisis. Uh, okay, nine. Let's hurry up and get through with this. Uh, I, I said it would be the war would be an excuse for to go after pro-Russian supporters, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba again. Uh, that hasn't happened. I think because they're so preoccupied uh, with Taiwan and Russia, uh, and they don't want to aggravate uh, unnecessarily other, you know, rest of the world emerging economies by open war fronts with Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. Right. So that's kind of on hold. Uh, the 10th reason the U.S. wanted wants a, wanted a war was to test the effectiveness of the latest U.S. weaponry against Russian forces and U- Russian weaponry against U- U.S. Right. Uh, and that's going on, of course. You know, the nature of the war and warfare itself is changing. We see the role of drones and missiles and satellite surveillance and other forms of surveillance and smart bombs and so forth playing a big role here now in this this uh, this war in Ukraine uh, with, uh, uh, you know, greater uh, or, or, or lesser relevance because they're so exposed to slow-moving tanks, right, and even planes given air defense and uh, even slower-moving uh, sea, sea-going ships, right? Uh, these, this kind of weaponry... Uh, uh, you know, tanks and planes and ships does not play as much of a role in war as it used to. You know, this is the old World War II um, kind of military uh, weaponry. Uh, now it's a, it's a war of long-range smart missiles and surveillance and drones and so forth here. Uh, and the, the U.S. is testing all of this, right? And the Russians are too. And not only effectiveness of their military arms, but vice versa, right? Uh so, uh, you know, this is where we stand on these t- 10 reasons, and I think at least eight of them were correct here, eight or nine maybe. Uh, 
of my predictions of why the U.S. wanted Russia to invade and the invasion. Um, now, we could talk uh, quite uh, in some detail about military strategy. We don't have the time here, but I am going to comment on the, the limits of the Russian military strategy, the SMO, uh, and uh, U.S. strategy, uh, vice versa here, uh, and the geopolitical politics associated with that. In an article I'm writing here this weekend called Revisiting 10 Reasons Why U.S. may want Russia to invade. Uh, so I'm going to post both uh, the article of a year ago and the new article on my blog, jackrasmus.com, here uh, this weekend. So take a look at it, and, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you may have uh, uh, some interesting uh, uh, things to think about. Okay, uh, that's it. Maybe next week we'll talk about military strategy here in some detail. Uh, I'm out of here.